and welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And welcome to the final episode in our series, Flash in the Can, the one-hit wonders of cult cinema. Today we'll be discussing 2000's American Psycho. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. In New York City in 1987, a handsome young urban professional, aka Yuppie, Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale, lives a second life as a gruesome serial killer by night. Uh, he has run-ins with a detective, played by Willem Dafoe, his fiance, played by Reese Witherspoon, his co-worker and assistant, Chloe Sevigny, and another co-worker, Jared Leto. It's a, it's a satire that's filled with violence and high society. Yes. And today on the show, um, it's not only the final episode of the series, we also have a special guest on the show, and his name is Jeff Malone. Jeff, say hi to everyone. Hi to everyone. Very good. <laughs> Jeff, um, so you, uh, well, I've known you for a very long time. Yeah, about, uh, what, 15 years, I'd say? Wow. Yeah, I guess I guess it would be um, cr- kind of crazy. You also are uh, getting into the podcast game, I hear. That- yeah. Um, it's something I've been meaning to do for a while, but it's, yeah, it's a show that I'm, I'm hosting with my uh, Aunt Beth. And, and tell everyone the name of the show. It's called That's Entertainment. <laughs> As opposed to That's Entertainment. <laughs> but, uh... And I've just learned this uh, right before we started recording. <laughs> Shout out to Aunt Beth. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm going to tune in. It's, awesome. So it's you, you and Aunt Beth uh, discussing pop culture, uh, things that are going on in, in the entertainment industry, I'm assuming. Uh, things like of that nature, I guess? Right, we're picking a uh, one pop culture topic per episode uh our first episode is about the emmys and then we discuss like our earliest memories about that topic and our favorite memories and our current thoughts about it cool yeah so check that out when it um when it premieres you actually have not premiered the first episode yet as of recording um you may have once this airs but um, definitely check that out it's called that's entertainment a-u-n-t entertainment Correct. All right. Now, let's talk some American Psycho. Um, Jeff, I guess since you're our guest, uh, what, what were your first impressions? Uh, I don't know. if Had you seen the film before? Uh, yeah, this was uh, my second time seeing it, but I think it might be my first time seeing it in full. Um, the first time I saw it was um, about 10 years ago uh, when I was in college. My... Room, okay. my roommates had it on and I think I joined them maybe like 10 minutes in mm-hmm. um, 
is maybe like it's a hell of a movie to walk into yeah. yeah well i think like one of the first scenes i saw was the business card scene uh, and it was best. like okay i'm definitely gonna keep watching like <laughs> whatever else i'd been doing yeah uh i dropped what, what were your first like i guess watching it all the way through i mean what what did you take away from it um that you wanted to talk about i guess um, well, the first thing that was really noticeable um, that I hadn't thought about before was the scene when they go out to the club in the beginning mm-hmm. and um, Patrick insults the bartender and mm-hmm. calls her a bitch, among other things, and yeah. she has zero reaction to it, which... Um, which becomes a theme in the film. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, the and, miscommunication, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, so I don't think I'd seen that scene the first time I watched it, but seeing it now in light of the way mm. the movie ends, it was it felt like um, the flashbacks at the end of Sixth Sense where you go, see, oh, this is why everyone seemed to be ignoring Bruce Willis. I'm like, maybe she's ignoring him, ignoring, maybe the bartender is ignoring Patrick because he didn't actually say those things. Mm-hmm. Um well, also, Patrick is so blatantly, I mean, he's pretty upfront about being an asshole and being completely vain and, you know, empty. And, I mean, right. as are the others, the others around him uh, that he works with and, you know, in that same world. Um, but obviously it does, it does ramp up a bit towards the end. Um, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that. But I mean, uh, one thing I wanted to start off by discussing with this movie, and there's a lot to dig into, um, First thing I wanted to, to mention was just the way I, I really appreciate the way that dark comedy is used, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the way it blends this with the horror elements. Jeff, you mentioned the business card scene, um, and throughout the film, I mean, there's many allusions to um, just that kind of vain emptiness and like you know the 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 people on Wall Street and just how they're concerned with the superficiality of things. And I think the business card really. Uh, accentuates that point um so you have that scene where they're all comparing the the business cards and um i think that's one of the best scenes in the movie and it's a great way to show the shallowness the superficialities of, of these characters um just the slight differences between the cards yeah. and the react and the reactions i mean they're the basically the same card they're, they're pretty much exactly like, they're yeah. pretty much there's very subtle little differences that you know to the naked eye uh, you know a graphic designer might notice but like right. you're you're a standard your, your, your average person who is not in an industry where they're making business cards is probably mm-hmm. not going to notice an emboss versus a deboss. You know, right. <laughs> it's one of those. But it's so, and, and but, that's something I think kind of carries throughout the movie is, because um, to me, it, it, it's interesting because talking about first impressions, I saw this movie for the first time in high school. Um, and I the first time I watched it, I saw it strictly as a horror film. Um, I, I just mm-hmm. don't think I kind of was old enough. I did too, actually, when yeah. I first saw it. I, I, yeah. I, don't, I just don't think I, I had a, enough kind of worldly experience to understand that this was supposed to be funny. Um, and mm-hmm. now watching it again years later, um, and I've seen it a few times since then. I, I've probably seen this movie four or five times. Um, to me, it, it plays mostly as a comedy. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. there are yeah. some pretty gruesome moments, but like... Yeah. For the most part, it's re- even the opening scene, which is something I had totally forgotten until a more recent rewatch, where the the opening shots of the movie is this, it looks like blood dripping on this white surface, oh, yeah. and then you realize it's just this image. really high-end cuisine, but yeah. with this horror music. And right from the beginning, like it, it basically is telling you, 
it's gonna seem scary and crazy, but it's really mm-hmm. kind of not what it seems. It's really a joke. It's really a critique. It's really satire. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. We've we've talked previously, uh, Jeremy, about tone. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about that with uh, Return to Oz. I mean, we've talked about that a lot in the show. I feel like, um, and with this film, um, you know, because we, we've talked about how difficult it can be to maintain uh, a consistent tone or or to be able to manipulate that tone mm-hmm. and this film i think does a great job of establishing and maintaining its tone like mm-hmm. it you know and, and i think to the point where you find yourself laughing during a brutal murder scene yeah uh, and, I, and i'm thinking specifically of the hip to be square mm-hmm. uh huey lewis in the news scene um i mean that's just so absurd and so over the top mm-hmm. um but then the very next scene he's you know, it's, it's just goes, it goes from one extreme to the other. It's like mm-hmm. the most brutal, horrific scene goes, you know, goes from that to like him getting his laundry or him just at the mm-hmm. spa or, you know, something like that. And I think that's in a way what makes the movie work. Yeah. Um, in a strange way. Well, and I think, I think something that's interesting, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this, is to me, Patrick Bateman is actually the most human character in this story um, in a weird way. Um, because he at from least... From the ones that we see, yeah. From the ones that we see, because he at least looks inward. Um, like, the moment... The, actually, it's in the scene you were just talking about, where right after he commits the this brutal hip-to-be-a-square murder, he's carrying, some, he's carrying like, the body around, and one of his co-workers... He runs into one of his co-workers, and his co-worker's <laughs> like, where did you get that bag? Like, he, he's not questioning <laughs> that there's a human yeah. body-sized bag just being dragged even the, around. Even the Night Watchman doesn't even notice. Um, yeah, it's, oh, where did yeah, you get that like, bag? And, and everyone throughout the film is so shallow, and it feels yeah. like Patrick Bateman is the only one who's questioning it, which I, I think is kind of interesting, because talking about tone, but also just, like, crafting character, it's tough to make a character like that likable. You know, yeah. he like he's he's just totally relent. I mean, he kills a puppy in this movie in the first yeah. half hour. Stom- and he stomps still, on it. Yeah, he's still probably the most <laughs> likable character, which is, is yeah, and that's partly due to Christian Bale's performance, which yeah. well, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more. But mm-hmm. the way he plays the character is so uh, pitch perfect. I think um, it's also the rare film that's seen through the villain's point of view, mm-hmm. um, as it was in the original novel, uh, which we'll also talk about in a bit. But um, so the film does a good job of, of uh, somehow still maintaining a lot of mystery about who Patrick Bateman really is to the point where, you know, it's like, does Patrick Bateman even know who Patrick Bateman is? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot is, of times... Is it's, there a Patrick Bateman? <laughs> exactly. Does he yeah. even exist? Um, and a lot of times it's what they don't show in this movie um, that I find is, is really interesting. And, and um, like when he's... Uh, there's, there's a really quick scene where Patrick Bateman's walking um, and he, there's a woman at a crosswalk... Um, and as soon as the sign turns to walk, the, the scene cuts away. And it just goes right to a laundromat scene where he's arguing about the removal of a rather large red stain. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's left to your imagination, but you can kind of infer. But I, there's a lot of that going on in this movie, and I really appreciate that. Um, and also the fact that it is seen from the quote-unquote villain's perspective, a, a bad person's perspective, which is funny because uh, the Joker film that just came out, mm-hmm. I, have not, not, I have not seen that yet. I just uh, saw Jeff, it. I don't, yeah. You, you did see it? Okay, mm-hmm. Jeff, did you see that movie? I have seen it, yeah. Okay, so I'm the only one who hasn't seen it yet, but um, I'm sure there's some correlation there. Um, a little bit. Yeah, a little, a little bit. bit. Uh, I mean, he's, you know, it's he's in pre-villain mode. He, he fully right. embraces his villainy, I guess, he's by the up end. To it. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's more, more we see him as a victim um, right. mm-hmm. early on. Patrick Bateman's not a victim. Patrick Bateman no. is as far from a victim... 
he, he has might, victims. He might be a he might be a victim of um, circumstance a mm-hmm. little bit because you know he's like the son of the person who runs the investment firm and he's right. kind of been thrust into this life. But he's by no means someone who society has kicked aside. He he's victimized because. He can't get a reservation at a really expensive restaurant, not because he can't afford to keep his lights on, or because yeah. he's not kicked well, around. You know, I mean, he's Seven, a victim in the sense that any man is a victim of the expectations of masculinity. Exactly. Oh, definitely. You you hit it right on the head there, and I think that's really what this movie's about. I mean, well, one of the things it's about, it's also about obviously like eighties uh, greed, emphasis on capitalism and conservatism. Um, there's a lot of that and of course in the last scene you see Reagan on the TV and you know giving his speech and kind of ties everything together but um, I like that they didn't go too heavily into like when the movie was set the time period mm-hmm. um, you know there's like glimpses of that and there's hints of it but it's not really in your face too, uh, too much which I, I appreciated yeah um, but so this film um, was based on a novel um, by Brett Easton Ellis um, and I, I have read a lot of his books I have read this one um, and I, I was I was a big fan of it when I read it. Um, it came out in '91, and it was somewhat of a um, it was quite controversial, as you would <laughs> expect, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think I realized how controversial it was until I started reading up oh, on yeah, it. Oh yeah, it was uh, very yeah yeah publicized. People were really up in arms about <laughs> it just because of mostly because of the descriptions of the you know the brutal slayings and. The misogyny, and I think a lot of people don't realize, like with the film, I think people don't realize that it's it is a social commentary and it is a satire and yeah. all of that. And there's there's that black humor. Um, a lot of people just take it at face value, um, but there's that subtext. You know, I think that's what what's important to to understand, and I think that that's what makes it what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I think the film does a great job. Um, Jeff, did you read the novel by any chance? And no, I haven't. Okay, so. So I think the film does a great job of, of taking that because the novel's written in a first person narrative, mm-hmm. um, and so it's written from Patrick Bateman's point of view, which is probably um, why it was controversial. If it, you know, if it's if it's an objective mm-hmm. cold story about this happening, then it's just mm-hmm. true crime. But when it's written in the first yeah. person, then all of a sudden it, it it asks the reader to put themselves in the shoes of this person. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. kind of like the movie does. There there are a lot of POV shots in this movie, which I never really noticed until this most recent viewing. Yeah, lots um, of scenes of like the back of his head when he's talking to someone, kind of like a Citizen Kane kind of yeah. thing as well. Yeah, or even people looking right down the barrel in conversation, like like the scene where he's picking up. Um, I forget the the character's name, but the the there's a scene where he's picking up the prostitute, and um, the car is kind of moving. And when when she's talking to him, when when the camera's pointed at him, it's it's kind of uh, three quarters, even maybe pushing a little bit more towards profile. And when the camera's on her, she's talking right d- directly down the barrel of the camera. So we're, like, totally subjective mm-hmm. camera in his shoes. Right. Um, and a lot of the reason for that actually is, uh, well, <laughs> I told Jeremy before we started recording that I, I listened to the commentary uh, right before we recorded this. Um, I had seen the film uh, a couple times, well, probably, like, at least three or four times. Um, but I hadn't seen it in a while, so I rewatched it with the commentary and uh, with Mary Heron, and you know who we want to talk about a little bit because uh, a big part of this series is uh, you know one-hit wonders, people that uh, filmmakers that made a movie that connected and it was kind of a, a big thing, and at least in the cult world, and uh, that's pretty much what they're known for. And I would definitely say that she's known for this mm-hmm. film, although she did make I Shot Andy Warhol before this, and she has a decent number of films like Notorious Betty Page and things yeah. like that. 
Um, but I, fi- I think it's, it's safe to say that American Psycho would be, uh, you know, th- what she's known for. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she did a great job taking that first-person narrative and uh, not only marrying it with some really striking visuals, but also um, she she talked about uh, in the commentary about how, you know, she there's a lot of victims are women in this movie, and she tried to um, see the a lot of the brutal murders, like she tried to see it from the woman's perspective mm-hmm. in a way. So I think, I think a lot of what you're talking about, Jeremy is how it's shot. And I think it does kind of give it, even though it's from Bateman's perspective, you're kind mm-hmm. of seeing it through other people's eyes. Um, in a lot of the scenes, I think yeah. it's pretty cool. Well, and I think, yeah. I think when we actually started getting into the real, like the lead up to the violence, I think is kind of through his perspective. But once we actually start mm-hmm. getting into the violence, it becomes a lot more, um, objective or through their perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Because and I and I think it would have been I think I, I think that kind of helped it keep this idea of critique mm-hmm. um, because the, the the murders you know the the murder with the um, with with what's his name Allen what's the coworker Paul Allen Paul, the Paul Allen, Allen murder uh, Paul Allen yeah that one is funny and you know the ones mm-hmm. like 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 a, a lot of the murders of the men are kind of funny because they're viewed as this bravado kind of you know, jealous thing, but but when they're it, all the same playing field, yeah. Yeah, but but when it when it's the women, they're they're not played as funny in the movie. Um, I haven't read the book. I could imagine that some of the controversy may have come from the fact that, and and, and knowing I I've read the only Brett Easton Ellis book I've read is Less Than Zero, but I, I've I've listened to his podcast a bit because he's had some guests who I'm really fond of, and he um, personality wise, he's very provocative and he's he can be kind of cold. Sometimes not in a not not in a way of critiquing him cold, but to prove a point, he can be kind of yeah. cold and rigid in the way he goes about proving a point, mm-hmm. and almost have a feeling sometimes of um, detachment. And I could imagine that maybe in the book, and you would be able to back this up or refute it, Mark. That maybe some of these murders with these women, he had that kind of detached, distant, more objectively oh. cold feeling towards you actually hit it right on the head because yeah i um was reading some quotes from him about this book and he didn't really talk about it for a while um after after it came out because of all the controversy surrounding it he kind of just stayed away from it which actually is kind of interesting if you know him at all but uh <laughs> very interesting but, but more recently he has uh come out and, and spoken about it and actually i was very interested to hear him talk about it because he said that it's very very personal um this this book and because a lot of people think he just went you know sat down and wrote this like kind of high concept uh wall street you know wall street person who is committing murders which is like a very good idea you know for Mm -hmm. for a book but he said that it it came more from just like him looking at himself and he said he was slipping into this consumerist void yeah um that that was supposed to be giving him confidence but really just made him feel worse and worse about himself yeah and he said that's where the tension of uh, american psycho comes from and i found that very interesting um so even though it's high concept um it's very personal to him and i think mary heron took that and like i said i think she just did a fantastic job with it Mm -hmm. um jeff what did you think about the way the movie looks and the way scenes were shot like do you think it was a I guess, well executed. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the parts that are really striking are especially the um, scenes where Patrick is going on about the his favorite music. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, 
I wanted to bring that up because I know you're you're a big music guy, Jeff. Um, Patrick Bateman's, you know, he seems to connect with popular music in a certain way. Yeah, well, he's, I mean, he's very much sticking up for the art of um, the, what's really the poppiest of pop music. And yeah. I, pointedly so, because he, mm-hmm. he talks about... Um, his, Phil Collins. Right, his love of Genesis and <laughs> Phil Collins, and he'll say, before Phil Collins joined the band, their stuff was right. too artsy for my taste. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I will definitely go to bat for the artistic merits of uh, <laughs> someone who's a true pop artist, as Patrick yeah. Bateman would. But I, I, def- yeah. I also like the the weirder artsy stuff that he yeah. isn't as big a fan of. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, as um, but you think that says a lot about his character, just the mm-hmm. the fact that he has these monologues about it. It seems like almost the only time he's actually passionate about anything is when he's talking about these pop artists and certain songs. And like he talks about Whitney Houston in the one scene, right. almost has like a spiritual moment. You know, it's I, what, I what do you think that, that says scene. about his character? It reminds yeah. me a, a bit of um, a lot of uh, Hannibal Lecter, especially yeah. the uh, Mads Mikkelsen version on the Hannibal TV show where mm-hmm. it's you've got a uh, psycho killer who's also a very someone who's very much into aesthetic pleasures mm-hmm. and I think there were a few shots of food in American Psycho uh, lovingly shot that reminded me of um, the mm-hmm. Hannibal TV show that's funny I, I love yeah. personally. I really love to to go back to the the Whitney Houston thing a bit. I I really mm-hmm. love that scene. Um, well, a I, I think that anytime there, there's a couple things with with descriptions and the way Pat, Patrick Bateman describes things. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I like to read food reviews in the New Yorker, um, and Patrick Bateman. It sounds like any restaurant he's talking about. He has ripped the verbiage straight from a review. Um, it's like, like, like the, the, it's, that's not how people normally talk about food right. or music. It's like, right. it, it, it's how someone who's writing, you know, their 400 words on that thing oh, yeah. would describe yeah. it. Like there's, there's one thing where he's talking to, uh, the Willem Dafoe character and he's talking about some play he had seen and he describes it as a laugh riot, um, which, which I, which is such a bizarre way of speaking. Cause who actually says that? Right? Yeah. Like, like no one actually says, yeah. Oh, it's a laugh riot <laughs> to a, to a yeah. police officer. Um, but what I love, I love the Whitney Houston scene because, A, the thing that he's so impressed by isn't necessarily the music itself. It's the fact that she's had four number one singles, um, which means that, like, you know, she's had success. And the thing that he is thrilled with and the thing that his whole life is kind of consumed by is this idea of conforming and being as much like everyone else as possible. Um but I love that when he's talking about how he loves Whitney Houston, there's the woman there who's getting kind of tipsy and maybe drugged, and she's like, you listen to Whitney Houston, you actually have a Whitney Houston CD, and it just mm-hmm. breaks him, because yep. it's like, even though he's into the popular thing, like, yeah. it's he can still be judged for it, even though he's yeah. done his research, he can, and there's just this, this little moment where he just gives her this look where he's and, just totally flabbergasted. And that's all, that's all it takes, it's just like a switch that goes off, it's like... When, now she's going to be murdered, you know? <laughs> so yeah. It's just one little thing, you know, one little imperfection or, one, you know, just something against him. And, and, yeah, I mean, that's – he really is truly a psycho in this film. Yeah. And, and, and whether or not it's imagined or not, I, I you know, I don't – I think either way, it's just, like, his performance, the way Christian Bale plays his character. Um, I mean, he takes a character who borders on 
essentially a cartoon character. Like he's so over the top. Yeah. But he gives he gives him such an underlining uh, underlying depth that I didn't even really realize yeah. before until I rewatched it and. You know, it's just like what's going on in his face. There's like so many little things like in one scene that mm-hmm. that can happen on his face. It's just really amazing. I um, I saw a piece of information that said when uh, Christian Bale was doing research on this movie, he was kind of feeling stuck with the character, and he saw mm-hmm. a clip of Tom Cruise on a talk show, and was thought <laughs> was it was it, amazing. Was it the Oprah Winfrey show? <laughs> mm, was it Oprah? Maybe. I think it might okay. have been pre pre the Oprah. I think thing. I've heard about this. I think it was on Letterman actually. Letterman, yeah, so, uh, and okay. it was something about how he was so enthusiastic outwardly, but to Christian Bale, he felt like there was nothing behind his eyes. Oh wow! Um, which which I I just thought was kind of an interesting thing, and that's not that's not a, uh, a critique of Tom Cruise. I think that's just the the feeling that a lot of entertainers have when they're having to go through the talk show route, mm-hmm. where they're having to promote something that they've already put all of their artistic mm-hmm. passion into and then they're kind of done with it but still have to act like they're excited about it even yeah. though they moved on and i think that's kind of patrick bateman in a nutshell is there's nothing right. he's really excited about um mm-hmm. but he you know yeah. he has to outwardly even like down to him talking about how we have to save the children we have to stand up for feminism like like him, him mm-hmm. giving his little social critique of everything everyone has to do better and if you just heard that person speaking you would think that they were actually passionate about these things, mm-hmm. but like we know yeah. that he's not, which is right. actually a really common thing. Um, particularly, I, I living in New York City, I bump up against people pretty regularly, um, not who are necessarily Patrick Bateman types, but who because you know New York I is hope not. Uh, well maybe they are I don't know, but but New York is you know is a bit of a microcosm in the sense that uh, everything is so connected and ground level, and you, the richest people bump up against the poorest. So there is this idea where everyone is constantly trying to put on a front so they, for lack of a better term, fit in. Not as much as not as much now as the Reagan 80s. I think now it's yeah. a little more overrun by hipsters, which isn't an insult. I think it's definitely better than the Reagan mm-hmm. 80s. Um, but, but there's still that, that certain type of isolation that, that we see in this film, you, you think. Yeah, and performance. Like, it's, yeah. it's very performative. Yeah, right. Like unable to connect with others while living amongst you know so many other people and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that definitely comes across in this film for sure. Um, and just a couple takeaways from that commentary. I'm not going to harp on it too long. Mm-hmm. The commentary uh, from Mary Heron, the director, is actually it's from 2005, so it's probably the same one from the DVD. Um, but uh, some of the things she, I mean, if, if you're interested at all in this film, uh, if you're listening to this, <laughs> definitely check out that commentary. Um, if you're into film commentaries, um, it's a very good one. And one of the things she says in the beginning is um, that this film is. She said it's a comedy of mistaken identity, <laughs> which is an interesting way to look at it because there is a lot of mistaken identity going on in the film. Uh, people get other people's names wrong. They mistake people for other people. I mean, it happens throughout the film. Um, and that says a lot about just that culture and how everyone is striving to, to be the same and look the same. Uh, and, you know, I think the scene where he puts the on the facial mask in the, be- the very beginning when it's going through his morning routine... Um, and this is actually what she says as well, is that the, the scene where he puts on the, the facial mask is what best sums up the film. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what she said as well, and I, I thought that when I was watching it. Um, but, um, and also just some other things she brought up that I didn't even notice. Um, so they never actually show Patrick Bateman or anyone else doing any work at all. Yeah. Which, which <laughs> is so that. obvious now that I think, that I think about it. But, um, and that was the yeah. same thing as in the book, but you know, it's just the, this act that it's, it's all facade, uh, you know, like his social and his romantic life is just, it's all just for show. Um, you just see him 
hanging out, listening to music. <laughs> he never actually does anything. Which one, was... one thing with that that I, I just noticed for the first time in this most recent viewing is the scene when uh, the detective comes into his office, the Willem Dafoe character. He mm-hmm. just pretends to be on the phone doing business yeah. because right, yeah. he, does, he doesn't want to give the appearance that he's not. He, or he wants, rather, to give the appearance that he's doing something productive at all times, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's literally just sitting there. He's doing absolutely yeah. nothing. <laughs> Yeah, he even see, like sheepishly uh, puts his his headphones in the drawer. Like he just like sweeps it into the drawer and yeah. closes it, and like so he doesn't want him to see it. Yeah, it's funny. Like well, I, it's just very like all these little things just really add up mm-hmm. um, in this movie. I mean, I just uh, in the moment of watching that, I didn't even like interpret that as like he's trying to make it seem like he's working. It seems like I, I was just conditioned to think like oh, detectives coming in. He wants to not seem suspicious, mm-hmm. so he's talking to someone to, for whatever reason, this conversation is um, going to establish that he's not a suspect in yeah. uh, the disappearance of Paul Allen. And then you hear what he's saying, and I'm like, why the hell is he talking about this stuff? What the hell's the point of that? <laughs> yeah, he's like telling someone how, how to book a restaurant reservation yeah. or something. It's right. like the most useless <laughs> like that, conversation. That's him working, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then anyway, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you know, just some business. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and uh, the last thing I'll bring up, well, two other things I'll bring up from the commentary, cause, just because I found them interesting for our conversation. Um, Mary Heron said that one of her favorite films is Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh-huh. uh, a, a Well film. Have you seen that as well, Jeff? Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, that uh, might be my favorite foreign movie of all time. Oh yeah, it's it's great. Jeremy. Have you seen that one? I actually have not. I've seen a few other Bunuel films, and that one has okay. been on my list forever. Yeah. but I have well, not. Well, sh- when it she yet. brought that up, yeah, it definitely made sense because um, it's a very surreal film about well, obviously the bourgeoisie, but um, the upper you know upper middle class mm-hmm. um, and just ignoring certain things and yeah i mean there's a lot uh, when she said that it just all kind of came together for me and also uh another that, quote that she's what well, sorry what was that the, well that's a movie about just constantly trying to eat get uh, yeah eat dinner trying as well to eat dinner right exactly yeah i'm just ignoring what's going on around you pretty much yeah um and then uh, the last thing i'll bring up that she said is she said nothing can come from within because there is no within in reference to Bateman, uh, like she's talked about how everything he knows, he learns from videotapes. You know, he, yeah. like he's always talking about returning videotapes. Yeah, and I, I just thought that was a very good quote that she said. Uh, it's kind of sums up his character a little bit. Mm-hmm. He, he's yeah. manufactured, I, I think. Right. Is like like ultimately his his mm-hmm. whole his whole existence, and he says it right in the beginning. There is no Patrick Bateman. There's just the idea yeah. of Patrick Bateman, and like so, which is interesting because he's self aware enough to know that. Yeah, you can you can sense him fighting it a little bit, and as the film progresses, you do see more and more of that. Yeah, um, you know the big confession scene. You know when he's confessing to his lawyer on the phone, and mm-hmm. and then walking up to him afterwards and just like pleading with him, like I did these things, I killed these people, you know, um, yeah. and just and he it just, just it almost seems like he no is punishment. trying to find some kind of humanity in it all, um, mm-hmm. which is I, I I'm trying to think what it is. I saw another film recently that. I was thinking about the exact same thing where it's just someone, it might be under the silver lake. Um, have have either of you seen that movie? No, I haven't seen it. Um, worth, worth checking out that I think that's going to end up. I have seen it. Yeah. Going to end up being a cult film eventually. Um, but it's, yeah, but, but I think that, that Bateman is just searching for like, he's kind of searching for meaning in a weird way. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. But, like, not really finding it in any kind of meaningful way. It's like, right. like he, he's searching for meaning in ways he thinks that he should search for meaning, maybe based on movies he's seen and music he listens to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, ultimately it's all hollow and empty and rather pointless. Yeah, and you don't know anything about his family or... Yeah, except uh, that I his mean, dad had... is... It, well, yeah. Some kind of executive. <laughs> that's, that's how he got his job, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a fiancé uh, played by Reese Witherspoon, but it's interesting because, you know, there's zero affection shown between either of them. Mm-hmm. Um, all their scenes, they don't even... I don't think they even go near each other. They don't... They definitely don't touch each other. <laughs> yeah, they don't... Um, they seem to be having completely different conversations. Oh, definitely. Together. Different lives. Definitely. They're like... They yeah. really are not involved. Which, I, that's why I, I, I was thinking about the scene when he breaks up with her and mm-hmm. she starts crying. Or tries to, yeah. Or, or tries to. And she starts crying. Mm-hmm. And that, I thought, was one of the most interesting moments in the film. Because um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about, like, why was she crying? Um, because it doesn't seem like she's actually really invested in him. Um, and, and my conclusion, and I'd be curious to hear what both of you think, is that she was crying because people would find out about it. Mm-hmm. And it was almost more of like a status thing where it's like, once again, this idea yep. of performative. Um, I recently recently read the book, The Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, I don't know okay. if either of you have gotten to dig into that or see the movie. The book I is have not. better than the movie, in my opinion. Um, okay. But it's, it's the same thing, kind of set on Wall Street. And one thing, I, I read it as part of a book club, and one thing we kept discussing is this idea of performative behavior amongst mm-hmm. the super rich and and i mm-hmm. think that that's what it is for her like when they just have that much money to burn it's all about what restaurant you go to who has the nicest business card for her being broken up with like it's not that the relationship is ending that she's upset about it's the fact that she's now going to be the person who got broken up with mm-hmm. i think it's exactly what you said i think it's uh, social status you know losing that is what makes her mm-hmm. cry uh, in that scene it makes her have yeah because it's. I mean, their relationship is is not existent as far as what we can see from the film. Um, but yeah, I think it's just all just the the status. You know, st- what what all these characters are about is status essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I mean, Jeff, how did you how did you take that that scene? Um, I mean, well, that seems like the simplest explanation that it's a status thing. I mean, in this setting in this world, that seems like it, that would have to be the explanation. But mm-hmm. it's what's weird is that it takes her a few beats to get to that reaction Mm -hmm. like first she basically ignores him or doesn't even hear what he's saying Mm -hmm. then she thinks he's joking and (laughs) he has to like just beat out that reaction beat that reaction out of her basically right um to you know like he has to be as forceful as possible to actually to get her to hear it and I'm like, okay, I guess it's a status thing, but I'm almost like, it's, it's like just like a physiological reaction at that point. Mm-hmm. Like that's just, like her body is just acting on instinct. Right. Like I should be, her tear ducts, <laughs> yeah. no, I should yeah. be upset when this happens. <laughs> but it, it's right. also, it's a pretty similar scene to um, Legally Blonde, which comes out just a year later which uh, <laughs> I've not seen Legally Blonde. Well, that one of the like five minutes into it that starts off with a character played by Reese Witherspoon getting broken up with when she hmm. thinks she's about to um, be get engaged, mm-hmm. and uh, she's um, the guy she's with is 
you know, it's like someone who she thinks she's supposed to marry as uh, mm-hmm. he's on his way to become a senator and she'll be there right by his side. Oh, um, it's very similar. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I think all the performances are pretty, uh, they're all vague in just the right way in this yeah. film. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like we discussed a lot about the film. Uh, right now, I just wanted to go to both of you and see, uh, we sometimes talk about, you know, what fel- what scenes stood out from the film or what stuck with us. Um, Jeremy, do you want to uh, just go first? Yeah, so it wasn't even a particular scene that stood out to me. Um, and it, it was kind of an intertextual thing. But there's one shot um, kind of later on in the film. I believe it's right before Bateman goes on, like, his big killing spree. And he's just walking in downtown Manhattan. And in the background, you just see um, the Twin Towers just, like, kind of looming large over him. And I, I think that moment just kind of stood out to me, just thinking about the fact that this movie came out just before 9-11 and how different yeah. the world of kind of yuppie culture was right after mm-hmm. that. And so, like, right. in a way, like, I think the, the context of this movie kind of changes after that mm-hmm. event because that attack basically was on Wall Street. You know, that like, that's mm-hmm. that's where it happened. Um, I, I think they yeah. might have even implied that they were working in the Twin Towers in this movie. Um, at some point, um, I could be wrong about oh, that. Oh, really? Okay. Because um, there's one point, like, when he runs in, when he's running in the buildings, and he goes in, like, two separate buildings at mm. the end. I could be wrong oh, about okay. that, though. But but either way, okay. or even if he's not, it's not where he's working. They're, they're right there. Um, and this idea mm-hmm. where it's, like, it was such a, a kind of niche little thing. You know, you had this, this yuppie culture in the 80s, and I guess a little bit into the early 90s. Um but then, you know, 9-11 happened, and then the recession happened, and now you go from a culture where these guys are kind of, like, praised as heroes, like the greed is good Reagan culture, to post-9-11 and post-recession, where these guys basically become the villains in our culture, in a, in a way. Um, so for me, it wasn't necessarily even so much a, a thing about the movie itself, but just the context of what the movie would end up meaning and maybe also why it ended up kind of becoming a cult film because it kind of right, was definitely it, it made it, it yeah. made it feel more distant because that was a society and a culture that could no longer exist in the way it had yeah no definitely it's it's one of those films that i think it's better um as it ages actually and you get more perspective and um uh, for sure i think it's part of the reason it is a cult film mm-hmm. um jeff did any any moments um do you have any favorite moments or any scenes that stood out to you from this film? Um, well, I, <laughs> yeah, I well, one uh, small but uh, kind of significant thing I didn't notice while I was watching, but I was like just um, uh, just kind of brought to my attention when I was just like reading up afterwards was uh, all the food that they mention at the restaurants that they go to (laughs) it's nonsensical or inedible and i didn't even realize it at the time like they're so talk (laughs) they're talking about it so fast and speaking about it like it's completely normal like (laughs) yeah like red snapper yeah mud soup with with charcoal arugula is Mm -hmm. one of them i'm pretty sure it's it's been a while since i read the book but i'm pretty sure there are actual chapters in the book that are just descriptions of menus. That's like, fantastic. <laughs> just passages of, of just descriptions of foods and and uh, 
and different restaurants and stuff like that. So they definitely got that across in the film. But that that's a very real thing because, like I said, like New Yorker reviews, like I like yeah. one of my favorite things in the whole magazine is the food reviews. And sometimes there will be food that you read about in there, and you're like, it's like that. Like, like I would rather just eat a cheeseburger. Like that's like <laughs> that that's like a ninety five dollar plate of the most disgusting combination of food you could possibly think of. Well, Jeff, you live in New York too, so I'm sure you've seen your fair share. Um, you're actually in Brooklyn as well. That's funny. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, I I feel like um, I still read about it more than I actually see it. I mean, yeah. if you if you want to, and you know, halal food carts are are plenty um, yeah. weird <laughs> enough for me. Yeah. Um. To. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think those kind uh, of I, those kind of menus are reserved for a certain type of people who yeah. have a certain income. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it says I think the restaurants say it all in yeah. this film. Um, yeah, so I mean that's I think we've said you know pretty much. I mean a lot a lot can be said about this movie, but I feel like we said uh, a lot uh, about it already, and I feel like um, you know I guess one of the criticisms that could be said about this film is that. There is a certain lack of progression, um, which I think used to bother me more. But I think watching it more recently, if you're just taking it as it is and kind of rolling with it. Um, and also, I feel like in some way that is the point of the film, um, because things kind of repeat and there's almost like a, like a circle, like a circular you know, cycle to things. Um, but I feel like, you know, you do start to see a bit of Patrick's descent uh, <laughs> into an all-out psychopath like you see him you know trying to leave his fiance you see him confessing to people uh there's explosions which i actually completely forgot about um there's there's a police shootout which i completely forgot yeah. about um so you know it does escalate a little bit but i but i think you know maybe a, a reason this is a cult film and not a mainstream film is because it is so hallucinatory yeah. and it's kind of it keep, continually feeds on itself and it's almost like a loop, you know, it just keeps going. It's like a, a, a murder scene followed by a, a scene at a restaurant, you know. It's, <laughs> but in a way, that's what makes it so dreamlike and so special. With no real so, transition between the two. No, and, and, and that's what's so jarring about it, yeah. yeah. Um, it was definitely intentional. I mean, mm -hmm. from listening to that commentary, it was certainly intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it works, um, for sure. Um, but, I, I, you know, it, it's, that aside, I think it is... a. a a great film and a great adaptation of a novel that may have been almost impossible to adapt, I think, because of the way it mm -hmm. is written um, and the notions that people had about it, um, the misconceptions about it. But I think they did a f fantastic job with it. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I want to get your final thoughts. Uh, uh, Jeff, do you, do you want to give your final thoughts on American Psycho? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll say, so the first time I watched it, um, when... The moment that uh, Patrick's lawyer says, "I just had um, dinner with," uh, was it lunch or was it dinner with Paul Allen? In uh, I don't in think it matters. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not important. So at that moment, the first time I saw it, I was like, "Oh, it was all in his head." Right. Um, but um, there's an interview from a while back. Uh, Probably close to the... Well, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but it was um, Mary Heron and maybe some other people involved with the movie were on Charlie mm -hmm. Rose. Mm -hmm. And um, she kind of lamented that the she wanted it to be more... The ending to be more ambiguous. Like, mm -hmm. she thought the way it turned out, it really does seem to be saying that 
it was all all the killings were in Patrick's head, but it was meant to be ambiguous. And um, Brett yeah. Easton Allen said one of the reasons it shouldn't be filmed is because it's it's harder to show that ambiguity on film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- I think you now seeing it again and having that perspective in mind, I think it works either way. If you yeah, say yeah. it was all in his head, or if it did actually happen, and everyone just inexplicably ignored all these deaths um yeah you know either way this character is is having a breakdown (laughs) right and it's Um, and either way way either way it's uh, well i think if it's uh if it did actually happen then you have the added um meaning of what it says about society that Right, right people ignore that um all these yuppies are interchangeable and all the the women who die are um, the type of people who are ignored by society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I, I thought one thing that in, in that ending too, which I don't know why, because like I said, the first time I saw this, um, I kind of thought of it more as a horror movie, which is why I guess my mind didn't go to the place where maybe it was all in his head. Um, because mm-hmm. as a horror movie, like that's kind of like the worst thing you can do yeah. that takes all the right. horror out so i didn't even think of that i the first time i saw it i remember and and i think kind of the at least for me the ending i kind of like would like it to be and how I, I guess because it's ambiguous it is for me is that like like you said like these guys are interchangeable but also just this idea that like no one is even paying enough attention to anyone else to know who who like belongs <laughs> to what name and like he could have done all these murders and like the guy he murdered wasn't even paul allen yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it could have just been some other dude. Right. And, like, Paul right. Allen was actually... The real Paul Allen was in London or at the casino or whatever. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, like it's Paul like, Allen could still be alive somewhere. Yeah, right? Paul Allen like, founded Microsoft. Yeah. It's yeah, like, apparently that's where they got the name from. <laughs> yeah, because if people can mix up Bateman for other people, then why can't yeah. Bateman mix up Paul Allen? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. like is, the, is, no one really... Is Bateman even Bateman? I mean, we don't even really know. Like... But that's why I think it's so cool about the movie. It's like, mm-hmm. no matter how many times you watch it, you know, because it is such a cult film, it's, um, you never really get those answers, you know, and it, it's yeah. kind of cool um, in a way. That just that vagueness. Um, and I think that adds a lot to the, the dark comedy of it as mm-hmm. well. Um, Absolutely. Like a comedy of errors. and mm-hmm. <laughs> A very uh, psychotic version of it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that uh, mixed with the imagery. Um, we didn't really talk about much of the imagery, but just like a, a naked christian bale running down a hallway <laughs> yeah. with the chain you know chainsaw, dripping yeah. in blood with a chainsaw uh yeah that's an image everyone knows from this film and yeah and, and that's why people think of it as a horror movie but like mm-hmm. you know as we as we mentioned there's a lot of comedy going on as well and i think with repeated viewings that comedy comes out more and more yeah um and yeah i it's definitely a cult film for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh worthy of this series and i think it's a great one to wrap up this series uh of a flash in the can Jeremy, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, definitely it's a, a, wacky, a wacky note to wrap it up on, for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the cultier... Went out, went out with a bang. Cult films, yeah, yeah went, out, went out with a bang for this series, <laughs> for sure. All right, well, uh, I guess that's going to do it for us today. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you for you're, having me. You're our, you're our second ever guest. Oh, boy. So we're new at this, but we hope we were courteous. I felt and, welcome. Uh, welcoming great yeah. that's good to hear um and that's entertainment yes check correct. it out it will most likely when's this episode dropping do you think i have no idea <laughs> well 
the the first episode of that's entertainment will most likely be dropping before this episode does probably sometime in october most likely yes that's a safe call all right well definitely check that out um and hopefully we'll have you back again sometime uh, i'll uh put that on my uh hypoth- my uh some random <laughs> point in the future sounds <laughs> schedule great. yeah yes definitely put it in your hypothetical calendar correct um so, uh, Jeremy, just to conclude our series here on One Hit Wonders, Flash in the Can. Uh, so we inadvertently <laughs> chose films from from uh, different decades. Each each film uh, that we talked about was in the next consecutive decade. So we talked about starting from the 60s, went to 70s, 80s, 90s. And we ended with American Psycho in 2000. So, yeah, we hit, we hit a lot of them there. <laughs> yeah. um, so that wasn't really planned, but it's kind of cool looking back... Um, we saw uh, a, a particular one-hit wonder cult film from each decade, mm-hmm. and uh, Jeremy, I mean, what what do you think about what we what we investigated here? Well, I, I think what's really valuable, the lesson I took away more than anything else, particularly you know as a filmmaker and film lover, um, I think it gets very easy sometimes to keep going back to the same directors over and over again. Um, particularly the ones who have kind of been canonized, which, you know, not to knock them or anything, but, you know, we so regularly hear about a Scorsese. We so regularly hear about, you know, a Coppola or an Orson Welles or, or, you know, these big, big directors. And, of course, their movies are wonderful, absolutely amazing, worth studying every second. I personally Mm -hmm. watch as many as I can, as many times as I can. But I do think there's also something to be said about trying to find these people who maybe haven't, either had the opportunity or just haven't gotten the recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, um, so, so my background, I, I went to school for graphic design. And with graphic design, I, I had to take a lot of art history classes and actually was able to get an art history minor. Um, so I'm, I'm a really, I would consider myself a little bit of an art historian and film historian. And I think that um, other mediums, you know, painting, sculpture, uh, photography, we all have processes in place at this point for preserving them because they've been around longer. Um, like we, like th- th- there are very strict procedures in place for what to do with a 500-year-old painting and how to make sure that it gets um, taken care of and recognized. Whereas with film, you know, it's still a new medium and we're learning, you know, the film preservation is growing as a field. Um, but especially now in the digital age, you know, it's, it's like a painting is a physical object, but a film at this point is kind of an idea if something happens to those original prints, especially, and all we have is the digital versions left or something like that. And so particularly with directors who haven't been canonized, I just feel like it's so important to keep discussing these directors, keep Mm -hmm. looking at their work, talking about, yeah, the anomalies talk about how they've influenced us, share them with people, because if we don't, the films are going to go away. You know, film doesn't last forever. Fires happen, you know, yeah. prints get lost, prints get damaged. So by by talking about these these little gems of these films and keeping them, you know, in, in the public eye, I think, you know, we can really, and, and it comes, it's not just, it's not just people doing podcasts and film historians, it's, it's every film viewer. We have an opportunity and I think a responsibility to share these films and talk about them. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, I, I've always been one for the outliers, for mm-hmm. the outcasts, and I think we talked about some of them here. Um, well, we did and we didn't because, you know, then we have Walter Murch, who is 
world renowned. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's extremely famous and, and well deservedly mm-hmm. so uh, in in Hollywood. So, uh, but you know, he made one that just he made a film that just didn't work for one reason or another with people, mm-hmm. and it didn't and it didn't become what he hoped it would be. Um, so you kind of see all different types of situations. Um, but I think mostly it's what you're talking about, Jeremy. It's like the, the outliers. It's the ones, uh, the filmmakers who maybe took a chance and maybe only got one chance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we saw that a little bit as well. And maybe they only wanted one chance. Like we saw with Herc Harvey, uh, with Carnival of Souls, how he made his one film. Then he went back to directing training films, you know, and he went to back to a certain, another type of industry. So, um, so we see, I think we've seen a lot of different types of stories in this series, and I think they're all worth looking into. And I think it also just shines a light that there are so many more out there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we can't talk about all of them, but no, uh, there are so many, uh, and and there are so many. Definitely yeah. take take some time and do some research and try to find. You know, we'd love to hear from you if there yeah. are films that uh, this. Obviously, this is where we're concluding our series. But if there are films that we didn't talk about on here, I know yeah. we, we had a list of probably, what would you say, 15, 20 films. Oh, we had to yeah, really, we, yeah. We had a very <laughs> we long list, and these were, the, list. these were the five we chose. But if, if yeah. you, so if you'd like some recommendations on one-hit wonder films, feel free mm-hmm. to reach out. Or if you come across any that you think are yeah. valuable, um, definitely let us know, because we're, we're happy to, you know, share it. We could always do a follow-up, or, yeah, yeah we could definitely, um, we ha- yeah, we had a very long list uh, of potential films to discuss for the series but we, we try to whittle it down to at least usually around five to six uh films is mm-hmm. usually what we go for uh for each series so we had to cut some of them but i think the ones we talked about uh i'm glad they were each from a different decade because that was kind of cool that it worked out that way mm-hmm. and um they were all worth watching i'll say that Absolutely. and worth discussing so you never know right <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to cult movie cult you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Apparently, iTunes is not a thing anymore, so I will stop mentioning iTunes. But <laughs> you can find us wherever you find your podcasts, wherever you're listening to us now. Um, and if you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, or if you'd like to officially join the cult, as Jeff has done, and be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.